broadcasting from the repurposed mainframe of a salvaged Jem'Hadar scout ship. This is Politrex. The Prime Directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, the World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ. Welcome everyone to Politrex. It's 2018 and we are back in the saddle. I'm Barry DeFord and I'm very happy to have you here today. And as with me always is my often imitated, never replicated co-host, Mr. Shashankavaru. How are you doing tonight? Namaste, homo sapiens. I'm doing well, my friend. How are you? I am excited and I am happy. 2017 was, for me, a good year. For the world, sometimes a challenging year. But I'm thinking 2018 is going to look pretty good. I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited to, to see what the year has in store. We've got more Trek coming in. Uh, we've got possible movies. We've talked about that coming up. It's a good time to be a Trek fan, I think. What about you? Eight months till STLV. That's all that I can think about. Oh my gosh. Every time I think Trek, all, all I think about is STLV. We're getting there, getting closer and closer. Just a reminder, we will be doing a role play, play, dramatization of our fan fiction of Star Trek. And you guys are welcome to join us. More details will follow as we get closer to the event. Yes. And actually, right now, I can give a little impromptu preview because I have actually completed not one but two scripts so far. Um, it is the Do it, Captain. The USS Chimera, which is a uh, refit of the Sovereign class. So this takes place post-destruction of Romulus. So we are heading into uncharted prime territory, folks. The USS Chimera has been sent out near the Romulan neutral zone to check on what looks to be an Andorian shipping uh, or a, like a like a shipping ship that has uh, been sort of lost, and it goes out to check on it, and it gets attacked by a Romulan bird, a Romulan warbird. Uh, they fight it off, but then they start noting that there is a rogue Federation ship that is becoming embroiled in a civil war that has started in Romul in the Romulan Empire. Of course, with Romulus being destroyed when that star went supernova, it's kind of like a creature losing its head, and so the Chimera ends up in a cat and mouse battle, attack, chase sort of thing with the USS Acheron, which is a uh, Aventine-class uh, starship. And those of you who know what happens with um, Esri Dax after um, after Deep Space Nine, she ends up uh, the, um, the Aventine, USS Aventine um, uh, captain. So anyways... I've got uh, I've got a, a captain, a first officer, and a I believe con officer so far. Thad Haid has uh, decided to join the crew. So if you have any interest, feel free to talk to us on uh, our our Facebook page. And with that, Shashank, how do you get a hold of us if you're jumping on the social medias? You can follow us on Facebook at Polytrex. That's P O L I T R E K S. Uh, we are much more active on Twitter, where we post funny gifts and memes and messages that we like to send out and tease people about our shows. You can follow us on Twitter on at Polytrex. That's Adred, P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. And if you're so uh, inclined, you can also hop on the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network website uh, and check us out there. We are a network of fantastic podcasts. Of course, there's the Tricorder Transmissions, there's Shore Leave, Trek Ranks, Drying Trek, and now that Discovery has returned, the triumphant return of Disco Trek. If you're interested also, you can send us a voicemail. You call in at 609-512-LLAP. That is 609-512-5527 and leave a voicemail message with thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, and all of that. But uh, do know that uh, anything that we uh, that we hear that we think is excellently good, we might even uh, might even give a little shout out to you here or there. So keep that in mind. And also, if you're looking for other fantastic Trek out there, you can always check out the Trek Geeks as well um, for some more podcast fun. So I think, Shashank, without further ado, shall we get on to the news? Absolutely. As part of this show, we spend a little bit of time talking about current events and we try to we try to bring them together and 
discuss them in parallel with what we have seen, read, heard on Star Trek and how those worlds connect and how we can make better sense of everything. The first big news item that we have that none of us were anticipating in the last couple of weeks, things were completely different. Things were a lot, a lot more divergent. They were, they were farther and farther away from what we thought we would be discussing today. But nevertheless, it was a book, a book that seemed to have broken the back of the administration and rattled them for the moment. Fire and Fury by Michael Wolf. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating book. I, I did pick up the uh, the audio book. I've been listening to it periodically, and I have to say, it seems very much kind of what I'm getting in unsolicited uh, quick book review for you all. It seems a lot like this administration is the result of a lot of improper planning and preparation at the heart of what's what kind of has gone gone sort of sideways here. Nobody seems to trust each other is sort of the narrative of this, and it's personalities vying for power. Now, we are Politrex, so we're going to talk politics, and you guys know that, and, and I think you guys probably would know where I skew in this, and uh, mad props to anyone who, who wants their, their party back, uh, and uh, maybe we can talk if you are happy with the way things are going, but uh, the Republican Party definitely is in a bit of distress, um, and very much by what this book has to say. It's, uh, it, it's sort of a, I could go into sort of larger points, but suffice to say, the whole thing sort of plays out like a fiasco. And and the way the election went, it was a fiasco. Um, major characters like Steve Bannon kind of come off as guys who really had no blissful clue what they were doing. And they kind of were like snake oil dealers and hucksters who came through. So there you go in that. I guess my, my Star Trek connection, because I like to make Star Trek connections to basically everything in my life, is I'm reminded sort of of the Dominion command structure. On the low end, you've got the Jem'Hadar who, if you don't like them, at least you can say that they're loyal and maybe perhaps to a fault. But they have a little more agency when it's when it's between each other. And I think they, they might have, you know, if you think about the Jem'Hadar, the way they're organized, the way they can fight, the power that they have, that maybe they could have actually done something about the problems that were happening between the Founders, the Cardassians, and the Vorta, and eventually the Breen as well. Their station sort of the Jem'Hadar, sort of reminds me of Orwell. Uh, Orwell, George Orwell said something, he was looking at a boy who was driving an ox and he was whipping the ox. And he was saying that if only that ox knew how powerful it was, that boy wouldn't be whipping him. Now, under no circumstances am I saying that people are necessarily chattel, and I don't think Orwell was saying that himself. Merely that people have more power than they realize. And I think the people who can fix things within this are the actual Republicans, the people who are day-to-day party members who can stand up and say, hey, hold on, we need things to to get this figured out. So I don't know, ideology is tough. And the Jem'Hadar do a good job at underscoring its conceits. But even Jem'Hadar saw the contradictions in their leadership, but they decided to do nothing. I don't know what you have to say about that, Mr. Avaru. Just to bring in another perspective, I'd like to see this whole situation as the second and third act of Nero's Romulans in 2009 Star Trek, where there is one man with a blind agenda just going in gung-ho or guns blazing at something he clearly has no idea how to accomplish and sees no end except for death for all. It seems like he's on a death mission And he has gotten a group of people together who have decided to dismantle everything that has been established. With this book and the quotes that are coming out and the the repercussions it is having and the the reports of infighting that are going on in the White House, it's clear that people that came in had a destructive agenda in mind, much like Nero and, and his ragtag group of terrorists. It was it was clear that when Nero was trying to do what he was trying to do by 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 confronting every planet and essentially sucking it in and trying to get to Spock by destroying Vulcan, you could you could see that all that he wanted, all that his endgame revolved around was was trying to prove a a point that ultimately was destructive and full of revenge and narcissism and a cathartic, hateful experience that 
he decided to bring everybody else into it, irrespective of what what the situation called for and what needed to be done. President Trump at this point reminds me a lot of Nero, especially in his in his almost Shakespearean hate for the people that that seem to that seem to essentially want to get away from him and live a life of normalcy. God knows it'll be a long time until we get back to normalcy, but for the people that are trying to get away from him, the people trying to question him, he's treating them much the same way Nero treated everybody outside of his ship in 2009 Star Trek. And that is not only alarming, it's it's almost laughable how cartoonish the, the hatred is. If you, there is. There is an NPR interview that just came out with the author who essentially said he stands by everything in the book and he did not expect the book to blow up this big because he he thought well there are people there are people that are going to intelligently handle this there are people that are going to contest it and try to get away from it in a manner much more intelligent than it essentially came out to be and there are there are people now who are quoted in the book that say they haven't quoted it that way to which the author says i have recorded evidence of them saying these things and i understand that they regret saying it but that doesn't change the fact that for the people who want to know the truth this is the truth and i find it fascinating that much like nero ship and the the followers that he had the gop is just blindly supporting trump in this as well they're they're in no way calling for reason if you go on gop's twitter page right now you'll see them taking a stance in the situation you'll see them insulting the author of the book insulting the book insulting people who've read and want to have a dialogue based on this book they're and then trump is is just spearheading all of this and it it would be very funny if all our lives weren't in jeopardy because of what this book reveals it's interesting that you would that you would sort of talk about sort of trump's shakespearean vitriol and 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 i agree with you there i i would say that the one case that i would go back to saying that this is more like the 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 dominion and their their sort of weird alliance is that nero's insanity and his quest for you know crazy revenge comes from a horrifically traumatic experience now i don't know very much about mr trump's personal life but it doesn't strike me that the man has had a experience that has rocked him like that so where i would agree with you that he's got this sort of dismantling kind of way about him he's he's not necessarily Though Nero is a total bad guy and he does some terrible and awful things, you can be like, well, you know, the guy's planet blew up and he's got to blame someone. And, you know, maybe it, maybe it has a lot to do with being sort of the, the, his personality. There might have been elements of his personality that were, were kind of fly off the handle as they were in the past. Who knows, right? Like Romulans are a vast and diverse group of, group of, uh, uh, individuals. I would say that. Where again you see that, and you've mentioned the Republican Party itself, the GOP, not necessarily, or they're, they're sorry, they're defending Trump, is is sort of kind of how it worked between the Vorta, the Cardassians, and the founders, in the sense that yeah, off you know in camera, or at least when they when they don't think they're being listened to, or they didn't think that this would get recorded, or or maybe they didn't think it would get used in a book. They are actually saying some terrible things, much like, you know, you'd have the Cardassians, Damar and Ducat being like, what the crap is this? You know, like they're changing the rules again on us or something, or the, the Vorta mincing around and stuff like that. But really, they're, they're, they're trying to preserve themselves. And that sort of everybody's in it for themselves and putting up this front of unity, it will come crashing down and it totally does. And again, to, to maybe dra- drive Garrick into this a little bit, because we are going to be talking quite a bit about Mr. Garrick today, I think about what the Federation had to do really to finish off the Dominion. And my fear is, I think, that that the Democratic Party might try to stoop to kind of populist levels to try to get rid of Trump. And that that does kind of concern me. Just for our listeners and you, Barry, there is there is an argument made by a lot of people recording this administration that they can actually trace back the very moment to which Trump decided to run for president. There is a 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner that happened that Seth Meyers hosted. And Seth Meyers and Barack Obama both 
essentially spent that entire correspondence dinner roasting Trump. There is about 30 minutes of footage with both of them just taking jabs at that guy. And Trump was in the room at that time. And they both made fun of how Trump wanted to be president. They made fun of uh, Trump claiming that Obama wasn't born in the US. And many people, historians, people who have studied the way administrations work and the way leaders work, they essentially concluded that one of the big turns that happened in his head when when he decided to do this for real, for real, is when this this correspondence dinner that was supposed to be a jab at the Obama administration turned into a roast for Donald Trump that he was not at all pleased with. So that that's for him. I I understand that the the definition of trauma is different, but for a person like him with his mentality, who's essentially a a child who thinks and functions like a child on edge. Someone getting together and humiliating that child in public, saying that this is something you cannot do, that would push a person like that over the edge. That would turn a regular person into a Nero if your head is as uh, deviated and not quite right as Donald Trump's. But in the midst of all this negativity, we have some interesting skewing on the good news, don't we, Barry? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, something that's come out um, just just uh, just recently at the time of recording. This is January eighth, um, so the recording should be out uh, in the next few days. So more will have probably happened. But uh, if you haven't heard of this by the time uh, you hear our podcast, hop online and have a look around. Um, North Korea and South Korea are beginning direct talks, the first direct talks that they've had in years. I had a friend um, who I went to college with, and he was from Seoul, and wonderful human being. But I asked him one time, like, what's it like knowing that, like, you're basically on the front line of nuclear holocaust should things go go squirrely? And he said, you know, you don't really worry about it sometimes. He's like, and then sometimes you really worry about it. He's like, there were mornings where I was like, I wonder if we're going to blow up today. And then you'd go for months without it happening. So the fact that, you know, at Panmunjom, there is news coming out here that, uh, that I think it's adjuncts for Kim Jong-un are are there. I don't know if Kim Jong-un specifically is at the meeting, but um, the uh, the South Korean president is actually saying that, yeah, no, this is, this is totally going to be a thing. We're going to, we're going to look into this. So I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty impressed. What do you think? I think it's, I think it's incredible. The, the talks essentially are going to start with Kim Jong-un's request and it being explored. His request essentially is about sending a delegation to the Winter Olympics from North Korea. But if the, if that delegation thing gets together and there can essentially be a team representing North Korea. I think both countries are very much interested in talks with the United States to get that the, the nuclear arms programs tensions down. They're they're trying to they're trying to cool some tensions off. It's it's I it's just difficult for me to find words because Confucius was very right when he said, "May you live in interesting times," because. It's very interesting that North and South Korea together are trying to find a way to ease tensions with the United States. I think that is in in the way that the stories of our lives are being written. I never thought that two countries that have been at odds with each other all my life, all your life, all most of our lives are now trying to get to a point where they can sit down and talk to the United States together about how nuclear tensions might rise down. It just it just shows that if you live a life long enough in in the real world, much like in Star Trek, things just start getting even more interesting and they evolve and go to places where you didn't think they'd go. Well, you think about, uh, say, the search for Spock, right? And then go to the undiscovered country, right? You've got the Kittimer Accords and you've got just 
getting getting the weapon right getting the genesis device let's let's harness this power and take them out once and for all i mean we're dealing with very similar similar stakes here right both countries are capable of some pretty awful things and i don't know to you quoting confucius i enjoy i will quote lao chu in saying that the sky is big and the emperor is far away and the emperor at this point is quite far away trump uh, the americans the Europeans, the Chinese even, I don't know how much they're soliciting this discussion. I don't know how much they are they are, they are here, right? We've got uh, Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea. And remember, South Korea just came off of a, a pretty huge scandal, right? Their, their previous... Uh, uh, the previous president was ousted in a in a pretty big corruption scandal that I don't have a lot of information on, but uh, I know South Korea has been reeling politically from it. So, with Moon Jae In being someone who is interested in a dialogue, uh, this this could really come out well. And and wouldn't it be great to see Korea themselves on their own manage to come up with something like a thing better than what they have? And all I can really think of is the people of North Korea might get more food they might might get might get more access to health care and the things that they need i mean they didn't choose to be born there and a lot of them try to get away so the more that they can have a something close to a a better better life i am 100 percent for this harkens back to the conflict essentially between the bajorans and cardassians to me the cardassians being north korea and the bajorans being south korea because even though this is a promising start and the relationship itself cannot be simply put in a couple of sentences and described as A and B. This is a great start, don't get me wrong. But the wounds from the decades of war and violence and bloodshed and cruelty and tyranny from North Korea, they won't just be wiped away. There is no country, even South Korea, that would just sit down and and say, well, all is forgiven. Let's get back to discussing the real issues before we get to a point where both countries can have a united front and represent themselves as one, much like Kardashians had to give in to the Bajorans, Kardashians had to get along and relinquish control and give up all that they had taken from the Bajorans, there will be a lot of give and take in this situation. And a lot of the give will have to come from North Korea for this to even get close to normalcy. Well, uh, yeah, I think a bit of give would have to take as well in the sense, like I like I'd mentioned, if if this can just even start a dialogue where humanitarian organizations, you know, uh, Doctors Without Borders, anyone can get into North Korea and start improving the quality of life for you know for some of the people who, you know, we don't see in the documentaries, right? When Vice News goes to North Korea, they do their best, but they're not showing you the people uh, who are there. And I hope I hope that's something that I guess you could say North Korea would take. But yeah, I mean, the regime itself needs to put its dukes down. But I do also think, you know, they, they're kind of like a person or an animal cornered, right? The, the more you raise your hands at it, the more it's going to snap at you, the more it's going to take a swing or two at you. So I think... You know, in the idea of all this posturing that's been happening, and, and I mean, yeah, I mean, the Pyeongchang is going to be getting the um, the Olympics, and so if North Korea decides to do any nuclear tests or anything like that during the Olympics, that's going to send a lot of people packing. I think that's going to f- make a lot of people freaked out. It's going to raise the tension. So if we can get them talking, I think that's the biggest, the biggest success more than anything. And if we can get them get cooler heads, especially with the Olympics happening, I think that would be a better way of going about it. I, I do find it incredible that a, uh, a worldwide event that has the eyes of the globe drawn toward it would be something that would bring them together. It it almost seems very poetic. And in a lot of ways, if I were to compare it to something from Star Trek, it seems like Cisco trying to go through the map of the voyage that he went in a star sail and trying to redo that mythical journey and getting everyone to get getting everyone on his side together to to witness it as he does it 
with his son and the Cardassians waiting at the end and them acknowledging it and saying, yes, well, you did it. That means this thing has been proven and now we know where we stand. It just seems like a something artistic and something athletic and something celebratory because Olympics are celebratory. They're, they're a celebration of who we are as a people and nations. It, it seems wonderful that much like Star Trek imitates so many things, it's imitating something like this also, where a sports event is bringing some bringing some semblance of normalcy in such a horrific place and in 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 the midst of such a tragic situation. You know, just you talking about the idea of Olympics, that's something that's missing from Star Trek is is I would love to see like a Federation Olympics. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, I don't know who's the best at Parisi squares or something. I don't know, or that that weird game that they attach to their head and it freaks them out or something or or, you know, maybe maybe like see if the Alorians are really that good at uh, holodeck target practice or something like that. And that would be kind of neat. It's sort of a maybe the Klingons come in and they have their like Batleth competitions and stuff that, uh, you know, I think we've got an idea here. We should we should have a Federation Olympics. If there isn't a Dabo table and my favorite lady in all of Star Trekness, Chase Masterson, isn't hosting it, I'd riot. I think she'd win. I think she's actually a secret Dabo master. I, w- I have no problem with that. I'm more than happy if we at the Federation Olympics just give her the gold, silver, and bronze medal just for Chase Masterson being Chase Masterson. She is pretty cool and quite the humanitarian as well. So, whoops, uh, I have to say, Chase Masterson, you're pretty awesome. That's some good news. And I think it's time we uh, we get on to the last part in our Spies in Our Star Society series, where we talk about some of the subterfuge and secret organizations that are portrayed within Star Trek. And you'll be interested to know who we're going to be talking about when we get into our main topic. Welcome back, everyone. Today's main topic is our final part of Spies in Our Star Society, where we discuss the mysterious, elusive Elam Garrick. Now, we are both divided on Garrick. So before we get into how we feel about the character and what he represents, I will let Barry take it away. All right. Well, Garrick... For those of you who haven't seen Deep Space Nine, if there are those of you who are listening to us who haven't seen Deep Space Nine, you are in for a treat. And those of you who are going to watch it for the 75th time, you're also in for a treat. But anyway, Garrick was the last remaining Cardassian on Tarek Nor, now called Deep Space Nine, when administration was ceded to the Federation through the Bajoran government. Um, after the Cardassian occupation. Garrick was kept there as a form of an exile um, from his time with the Obsidian Order. The Cardassians left him there, basically. And his life on DS9 was generally uneventful. He kept his tailor business on the promenade and would keep up appearances with his acquaintances and just different individuals, most notably Bashir, who I think Shashank, you and I can say is one of the best characters in Star Trek, correct? Oh, yeah, right up there. Top three. Mr. Siddig, you're awesome too. I guess sort of arm's length is the is Garrick's MO for most of the series, and the character himself seems to be extremely guarded about his past as well. That, of course, is due to his involvement with the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, and his specific activities with the Obsidian Order. Garrick begins to really come out as a character, though, in Season 5, where revelations emerge about Tain um, being being his father, who is a, a main player in the Obsidian Order for the Cardassians. And Garrick begins a very slow st- side story uh, of him coming to terms with his guilt and his humanity basically the things that get him exiled. Now, we do see sort of a beginning of this in season two, but I'd say season five is where this really picks up. So Garrick is heavily involved in embroiling the Romulans into the Dominion War on the side of the Klingons and the Federation, and he provides to be, his actions tend, I would say, turn the tide uh, along with Sisko's. So this episode, which we will kind of go into more, which is in the pale moonlight, often shows Cisco's badassery, as you would say, which I do not dispute. But if it wasn't for Garrick's complete ruthlessness, I would say the plan kind of would have failed. 
So this brings me to Andy Robinson, the guy who actually played Garrick. Robinson has played notable characters in the past in many genres, features, and series. Hellraiser and Scorpio Killer from Dirty Harry definitely come to mind. Robinson definitely channeled a bit of the unhinged qualities of these more scary characters into Garrick's persona. But Robinson is quoted as saying that Garrick was meant to be a little bit on the ambiguous side. And Shashank actually brought me to an interesting point or an interesting article on Andy Robinson actually saying that sexual ambiguity was also something that was to feature in Garrick's character, but it kind of got nixed. We'll provide um, um, links to all that uh, on our uh, websites. Robinson, I have to say, really owned the character and was even the author of A Stitch in Time, which is a book about Garrick's life. If you want to hear more about this, because I can only give so much in, in, in what we have on the episode, head over to the Trek Geeks, one of their earliest episodes. Uh, it was episode 11. They actually interview Mr. Robins, Mr. Robinson. It's an amazing episode and it got me into the Trek Geeks, but it also gave me a better understanding of Garrick's dimensions as a character. So, I guess you kind of have my opinion of Garrick in that uh, explanation as well. I think he is a vital character and an interesting character and one with, I wouldn't say a lot of dimensions, but a lot of layers at the very least, if we want to kind of go into the tailoring parlance. What do you think, Shashank? Just before we get into the character, Andrew Robinson also wrote a bunch of short stories featuring Garrick. He personally took this character from a supporting role to making him one of the cornerstones of the Star Trek universe and a, a benchmark against which other performances can be measured. You can see how classically well-trained an actor Andrew Robinson is when he plays this character. He plays a tailor, a, a soldier, a spy, no pun intended. He, he plays all these at once and so convincingly. He plays a friend at times. He plays an enemy. He turns on a dime. The way Andrew Robinson plays this role itself is enough value for you to sit down and understand the the motivation of this character and see where he's coming from and how fascinating he is. To me, Garrick, the character, is very much like Joker from the DC Universe. You never know quite where he's coming from. You never know what's on his mind. You don't know what his real origins are. Even to Dr. Bashir, he's the closest thing he has to a best friend on the show. He tells things that he later goes back and says, oh, well, well, that's not really what happened. I just made that up. So you would listen to me. You would you would go do what I needed you to do. Things like that are fascinating about that character. But that being said, I am personally not a huge fan of Garrick. I do not, I do not think he is up there for me in the in my top list if somebody were to put a phaser to my head and ask me to drop a list i don't think garrick would be on it and for me a, a lot of the blame falls in the writers and the producers behind the show who kept garrick on the on the edge of supporting role and main character and kept giving him episodes where he essentially did a lot of talk and no show where he did it, where a lot of it was him being inactive. I felt a lot of his compelling backstory was not explored as much. So in this episode, you will see me take a critical, a more examinative, more analytical path toward Garrick because I really don't feel a whole lot of emotional connection to him. But that is mainly also because I, as a viewer, felt cheated when the payoff came at the end for me with Garrick. Fair enough. I, I would say to a degree, not feeling emotionally connected to Garrick was sort of Garrick's plan, right? He, he he sort of always floats around in that periphery. He doesn't like to be in the spotlight. He he sort of shuns the 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 limelight of things and would much prefer be that actor in the back, right? I often think about the stars on the red carpet and the amount of work that the people to make the outfit that they wore, but it's the star. You never see the tailor a lot of the times. You might know the designer and the person who may own the company and stuff, but the actual tailor, you never see that. I guess one one thing that I think gets me the most about Garrick and his characters are some of his fantastic one-liners um, from 
the episode Cardassians, he says to Bashir, truth is in the eye of the beholder, doctor. I never tell the truth because I don't believe there's such a thing. That's why I prefer the straight lines and the simplicity of cutting cloth. And then later in The Wire, Bashir says, all of the stories you told me, which ones were true and which ones weren't? And he says, my dear doctor, they're all true. Even the lies? especially the lies. And and there, I don't know, there's almost something Jan Martel, Life of Pi, about that. I don't know if you're familiar with the book. Um, but it, it what we see as truth is often very much in the eye of the beholder. And that, I think, is important. And sometimes the things that we cling to, sometimes we find out are actually lies. And does that cheapen them all the time if the meaning is important? Now, I think it's important for empirical evidence for stuff. The earth is round. It's not flat. We went to the moon, you know, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes there are things that are greater than just the truth. And and I think Garrick kind of brings that forward in a lot of ways. I agree that Garrick as a character says a lot of interesting things. I, just as a viewer, did not see a lot of payoff. When he says things like, especially the lies, you want to see him do something that that is worthy of those words. When somebody makes a claim in Star Trek or any good compelling TV for that matter, you you want to see that person take it through. When even even in the god-awful Star Trek V that we all collectively have our opinions about, when Captain Kirk asks, what does God need with the starship? You essentially see a human being stand up to what their version of a God is at that point. And you cannot you, you cannot take away the fact that there is a scene where somebody is saying something and then following it through. While Garrick said a lot of interesting things, until In the Pale Moonlight came along where we actually see him influencing the big story and we see him taking charge of what he should have taken charge seven seasons ago you don't see a lot of a lot of garrick doing things that influence the the rest of the universe at large and that disappointed me i i thought that a character like that would do so much more than what the show gave him i just feel he's a lot he would have done a lot better and this is why deep space 9 could have used 11 more series right we've got Kieran Arise, we've got Odo, we've got Jazia and Ezri Dax, we've got Worf like parachuting in, we've got Dr. Bashir, we've got Cisco, we've got Jake, we've got Nog, you know, we've got Quark. All of these amazing characters, all having their little tour de force episodes, right? Like whenever I think of of really solidifying the Cardassian Bajoran situation, Duet comes to mind, right? When you really want to see what kind of character Garrick is, absolutely, Pale Moonlight is where you want to go, right? Um, you know, Odo trying to find his way as a solid after he's broken away from the link. The, these are all amazing characters. So I would say, yeah, you know what? More Garrick would have been nice. But I would say that what they do give of him is actually quite fascinating. I always, I'm always surprised at how Garrick understands his details and he keeps things to himself, right? You find out like midway through the series that he's actually fluent in Klingon, right? He, he's got this memory and that kind of comes into sort of maybe the inconspicuous work of a tailor, right? They're going to remember the things that you like. They're going to like things that you don't. They're going to know these little details about you and they're going to learn how to kind of work around them. I read an article on a website called The Cut. It's sort of a subsection of New York Magazine, which is incidentally, the magazine is about fashion. And it talks about a spy who describes himself to his friends and his family as a low-level salesman. And he goes on to say that his personal interaction with people is actually really quite difficult because the more you interact, the more you have to lie. So I'd say that Garrick sort of embraces and takes on this creation of himself he tailors his own life in a lot of ways and i'd say that that aloofness tends to be more of a shield than anything but it would be necessary for a spy both active and dormant so you know yeah garrick doesn't come in he doesn't show up in the in the series as often as maybe you would have liked him to or maybe even i would have liked him to but i think that almost gives him that feel right he does sort of come out of left field with some serious awesomeness in the last season. But I'm glad he did anyway. I mean, I guess better late than never. And I don't know if that's a, a, a solid argument or not. I'll let you be the judge of that. 
there are two big missed opportunities with Garectomy. At a time when Deep Space Nine was pushing the frontier and taking us where no one had gone before, you had Jadzia Dax kissing another woman. You had that moment where people who did not conform to the regular definitions of gender see themselves being represented. I thought that with Garrick, right from the first episode, when you see him taking an interest in Dr. Bashir and you see the way that progresses, you can tell that there is something more than a friendship there. And as Andrew Robinson himself stated, there is a pansexuality to this character. And there is a fascination that he has that goes beyond friendship, that goes to romantic attraction for Dr. Bashir. I hate that we never got to see that through. I hate that the the showrunners did not have enough faith to take that somewhere, to take us to at least a place where they confront each other about something like that. And there is a dialogue and there is a discussion and there is an ending and we see that happening. I hate that that did not come through. And that's where Garrick as a character failed for me in one of his personal characteristics. It was never addressed in spite of it having such a big pot of gold sitting right in the center of the show. Another thing that I think that was a missed opportunity is with Andrew Robinson himself, the showrunners did not have enough faith in him in the last season to make him a main character. The character was there. He was ripe for the picking. They could have put him in every episode and made it a very Garrick-centric season where you finally tell me more about Garrick or keep telling me less, but at least have him in there after building him for seven seasons. Instead, they had to bring in an SD Dax after Jaji had left to continue that legacy. I The idea that there is one character who was going to be, at best, a, a representation of what already came... And they they t- went to that area. They tried to explore that and leave behind this very interesting, this mysterious, elusive, incredible spy that is sitting there, that has Star Trek written all over it, that has representation and boundary pushing and fascinating storytelling written all over it. And they limited him to a recurring role. Th- those are two things that I have big problems with when it comes to Garrick and Deep Space Nine. You know, I, I would say that what we what we do get out of Garrick, though, is the quintessential spy, right? You never hear about the spies who did things that caused things to go well, because often when things go well, no one knows anything's been done at all. And so to keep Garrick in the shadows to a degree, maybe isn't all that unintentional and unwarranted on the part of of the writers, right? With Andy Robinson wanting Garrick to have a higher role, definitely. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I guess the thing is, is I wouldn't say no to any of your, your critiques, but I would say as a character and, and what we are served in terms of who Garrick ends up being is, is a, a character who does operate in the shadows. And, and we do get some, some, some bits into his life, but when I was reading another article uh, in Popular Mechanics, they had a, 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 CIA agent do an ask me anything on Reddit. And he basically talks a lot about sort of these little, little pieces about being a spy and, and, and really having to be forgettable and really trying to make yourself that way. And if, if Garrick is operating in the obsidian order, he's going to want to be that way. The other piece of it as well is we were to get really deep into the occupation. I mean, we get an idea of how things went through, you know, Ducat, Ducat do, to a degree. We get a bit of an idea through uh, Kira and several other characters as they go through. But I mean, Garrick wasn't making orders. He was he was interrogating people, right? Of course, you hear about the one he boasts about that he just stared at a guy until he he confessed. But Garrick also was in the position at least once where he could have killed some Bajoran kids. I don't know how necessarily that would play on cable television, maybe today, I guess. And Deep Space Nine is a a precursor to a lot of that. But again, if we look at how spies have to operate, I would say they aren't going to come out very often. They aren't going to come out of their shells very often. And when they do, they're going to be quick. They're going to be calculating and they're going to play everyone like a fiddle. And then they're going to go right back to where they, they came from. Absolutely. 
as as Garrick the character, as Garrick the spy, one of the things that I find most interesting about the character is there is no there is no lie to the personality that he has. It is clear that he's suffering from deep, intense emotional problems. And the more you find out about the character, the more you realize this is a guy who essentially has to lie to everyone about who his father is. This is a guy who was ill-treated by his family. And if our listeners go back to our first episode where we started Spies in Our Star Society, we, we talked a little bit about how childhood and family influences a lot of who you are when you take up the role of being a spy. When you take up espionage, it, there is an intense personal reason. There is, there is something very traumatic and heartbreaking that happens to you that you have to go into and find yourself in in order to represent this role of spy where you have to pretend to trust everyone but at no point can you trust anyone and Garrick plays that so beautifully there could be the possibilities of the way this character could have gone and what we see in the show gives us so much about who a real spy is as opposed to a typical James Bond tuxedo wearing spy that we get in Holodex Bashir. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think about that in, in the pain that Garrick feels, especially around his father. And you see him when he starts to prioritize his own interests, right? He's going to go into the to the Gamma Quadrant through the wormhole and find his dad. And he, he plays it up. He's aloof. He's all these sorts of things. But he does finally come clean. I would say also that, again, Garrick is a bit of a game changer there in the sense that they find Martok and they find not um, not shape-shifting Bashir, which I think is really cool, too. He's, he's, he's there sort of inadvertently helping the whole situation out quite well. But in, in Garrick's arc, especially around his father, we see him start to sort of renovate the internal storeroom that that spies say they have. There was uh, another article I read where one spy, the way they were able to keep command of all the information is they basically turned their mind into their childhood home. And they would wander through the home and put information down on like tables and dressers and beds, and they would make this information looks certain ways. So if they needed to learn, like remember like a, a 10 digit number, they would be able to go into their house and find where they had put that 10 digit number and, and look at it. So I think that Garrick talking and finally coming clean about his father and, and engaging with his father is him sort of renovating the house to a degree, but it ends up in a fire sort of because the traumatic start he had with his dad is a traumatic end right? They, they do sort of have this moment, but it's in a Jem'Hadar prison asteroid where Worf is getting his face broken in and all hope seems lost. And then, of course, we have the Dominion starting to move forward into the Alpha Quadrant as well. So, I don't know, I think, I think to a degree his, his exposure or his exposing of others to himself is always very careful and collected. And when it isn't, he's almost bumbling, right? Like he, he's outsmarted by Bashir who does have augment DNA and is quite smart himself. But before that, Garrick seems to be pretty salty. And and when his guard is down is when you really start to see him. And I guess, yeah, it has to do a lot with Andy Robinson playing the character. I mean, look at those eyes when he's looking at his dad when his dad's on that bed like it's tough and you think about all of the years of having to live this other life denying the existence of of your your relationship with your father um i couldn't i couldn't imagine it so i don't know if i answered your question or not or answered you, your your thought but uh yeah that that was a that was a good response it it reminds me uh two things one the 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 man walking into the house of his brain and putting things together that actually comes if our listeners are interested it comes from a study in scarlet the very first sherlock holmes novel written by arthur conan doyle where the actual quote is i consider that a man's brain originally is like a little empty attic and you have to stock it with such furniture as you choose. And Sherlock Holmes goes into this deep monologue about how there is a house and everybody goes in there and puts these things. If people are interested, it's a very fun, it's a very interesting memory tactic. I have tried it on occasion. It, it yields fascinating results. And the second one, with Garrick, the character, the, the way he plays it, and the way the arc goes, I now that I think about it, 
the only person that actually outsmarts Garrick is someone who is genetically manipulated and manufactured through science and fiction, essentially, to be smarter than everyone else. I think it's incredible that a normal, or I don't think Garrick is normal, an exceptional Cardassian is so smart and Garrick himself is such an intelligent character. It took someone whose brain was biologically re-engineered to outsmart him. I think it's, I think in a way that character, that that's a really good tidbit to our listeners that are, that might not have known everything about Garrick. So thank you for sharing that. I, I think that is very fascinating and changes some things about the character for me. Here's a question for you. Sure. And a, as a fan of Garrick, I am hoping to get an honest answer. I've spent some time thinking about it. Do you think Garrick knew all along how everything would go in the show? Yes. Do you and, think he knew? Yes and no. Um, I don't know. I think I think Garrick spends a lot of time probably coming to terms with being a former cog in a very sinister machine. And maybe that's why we see Garrick the tailor and making these little kind of offhanded comments and backhanded responses to people and really only showing the tools he has at at very specific times. I would say as well, I think he read people a lot more. And I'm going to use In the Pale Moonlight as where I think he really did know the people he was with as a character. So, yes, Garrick's contacts get things moving on the liberation of Cardassia as well later on, a few episodes down. But I I would rather spend time on on sort of that stone-cold calculation and maybe answer your question a bit. So... You think about that 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 cool collected way of dealing with Vrenak and uh, uh, Grathon Tolar. He knew each actor in the scenario, and he played them all like fiddles. I've said that before, but I would say his amazing monologue is also just sort of that. It's prepared. He knew Cisco was coming. He knew Cisco was going to chuck him over a table. Um, also, fun fact, you'll also notice that Andy Robinson's makeup is broken slightly um, where those kind of big neck ridges go down. I ne- I can't unsee it because I think like if it was a real moment, like he as a Cardassian, he'd probably be bleeding. But anyway, that's that's after watching it like several times when I first watched it, I was just enthralled by uh, Andy Robinson's monologue, but it was prepared and measured. And I think he dressed the situation very, very well uh, to Cisco and the audience. His measurements were very proper and he puts it together really, really well. So I would say that I think Garrick saw the hook sticking out of the bait for a lot of things long before they happened, right? He blows up his own tailor shop to get people involved in saving him from an actual assassination attempt. So I do think in a lot of cases, yes, he's very much ahead of the game and he knows what's going on. And maybe he chooses not to involve himself all the time for the reason that I don't think he sees the need to maybe kind of like the traveler that the traveler could just meddle in everything and probably run everything himself, but he decides not to. He lets other people do it. But when the time comes, he will involve himself. And when he does, by goodness, boy, howdy does he. And we see Cisco, we see all these memes show up of Cisco holding up a glass of what is clearly not synthahol in my eyes. And he's all disheveled and he's coming to terms with himself. But really it's Garrick who who did all of those behind the scenes things. He knew that Cisco wasn't going to act any further if the Romulans found out. And we think of Renak doing the whole, it's a fake sort of thing. Uh, Cisco's ready for a fight, right? He's like, okay, well, here we go. But Garrick's already, he's already figured it out. He's already got that part under control and it's done. And as angry as Cisco gets about what's happened, Cisco knows it's right. Garrick knew he was the guy who had to do it. And that's the end. So, did did Garrick see everything coming from the very, very start? I wouldn't necessarily say he had some sort of, I don't know, ability to see into the future, but his way of knowing people, his way of remembering, his spy's instincts definitely help him to forecast what's happening long before it does. I think there is a major difference between Gal Dukart and Elam Garrick that 
we don't see and find until we're looking for it. Gul Dukat is someone who wants the empire. He wants to reign. He wants to find control and power. But Garak does it. And Garak is clearly smarter than Dukat. We see that on every turn. We see that especially when Garak has whatever relationship he has with Dukat's daughter that seems to seethe and anger Dukat at every turn. When we see these things, we find that there's clearly one Cardassian better than the other. But Garrick, much like spies in our real world, who are part of this elaborate power game that everybody's playing, if you do that long enough, if you get to a point where all you do every day is influence and change the way empires are run and kings take their place and governments control people... I think you become a little dis- disillusioned. I think you become very you become very personally and professionally against things like that. You you see that and go, I can keep doing what I'm doing now because for some reason, no matter how messed up my life is, as a spy it works, but I never want the reins because once I get there, I know there is always someone like me behind trying to get at me. And that is something that I think is very fascinating about Garrick in comparison with Ducart is even though one is smarter than the other, the person that could have actually had a shot at getting things the way the Cardassians would have wanted it to go is clearly not interested because he understands that that end game only results in death. That's the best separation. And I think we see some really good alien differences, right? I mean, obviously, TOS was episodic and all those sorts of things. And by the time we get into the final end of uh, of Deep Space Nine, we get a lot more personality. Next Generation obviously shows a lot more personality between different aliens. I would even say that the TOS movies definitely show a, a larger pantheon of, of personalities that exist within each race. But yeah, I think one of the greatest contrasts, almost polar opposites, Dukat, who gives up his power so many times in the search of power, and Garrick, who really could run as a shadow controller in every way, shape, and form, right? He's a kingmaker in a lot of cases. He he opts not to. He opts to stand stand back. And I'd say that is really the, uh, that is one of the greatest things they, 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 genderify this to a degree but i would say this works for both both all genders uh both sexes all genders in the sense of don't judge a person when they have nothing judge them when they have everything and in the times where garrick has to take control and have everything he gives it back almost immediately every time and i think that's very important and that's a sign of a good person well i'll say this for our recording today it has certainly changed the way i look at garrick when I came in, I essentially had a, a fixed viewpoint that I didn't think could be changed. But now I, after our discussion, there are things that to me have changed personally about Garrick. And now when I sit down and watch Deep Space Nine for the 75th time, Garrick might grow on me a little more. I'm not saying he's my favorite character, but I'm certainly saying he's not. he, did, he does not seem as bad as or as unused as he was before. And I thank you for that, Barry. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that's happened. You've definitely changed my mind on The Traveler, and I'm glad I could kind of move things around a bit for Garrick. But, you know, we'd like to hear from you as well. And uh, the listeners out there, if you guys have some thoughts on Garrick, something that we may have missed, maybe another character or maybe a spy that you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't think uh, should should be should go unmentioned. I think uh, this is a good time. Call in, send us a message on uh, Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Of course, the number again is 609-512-LLAP-5527, as we would know. But I think this is the point where we're going to go into a sort of uh, one-two final thought segment now we've missed our final thoughts in the last little while so join us after the break for both shashank and my final thoughts on spies in our star society Thank you for sticking with us, everyone. 
we are going to in this last little bit talk about our overall feelings thoughts opinions on our three parter this was our first multi part episode so woohoo bari we hope to do more of these in the future and uh, we we would like to get into some other bigger character representations but for now we'll just share our final thoughts about spies in our star society bari thank you shashank well it's been an interesting turn we've we've gone from changing who you are and and not being yourself anymore both in a voluntary and coercive sort of way to the organizations that underlie what we would consider modern liberal in a lot of cases societies and then others and totalitarian regimes and the the darkness that can come from it and we ended off with the individual one person's experience who they are how they build themselves how they convey themselves and how they turn out what i think we as treks trekkers trekkies whoever we may find ourselves to be what we need to consider i think is how this is a reflection on us who we are as a people and what we are as a society now we say star society in the sense that we don't really have a name for what the federation would call itself other than the federation but they must have other names for themselves with having other names for themselves do they other do they have other dimensions and if some of those dimensions involve coercion espionage section 31 those dark moments where they have to stoop to levels that go against their own personal adherence or what they adhere to what exactly are they saying about themselves and how fragile is this utopia that we hold on to now gene roddenberry wanted to create a utopian society one where racism and greed disappear and a crew that is completely unified deep space 9 takes that away and i would say to a large degree so does discovery now some people have said that well that's not star trek that's not the way it is i would say that honestly this is just another dimension of what star trek is because honestly star trek really is just a reflection of us so i guess what i would say to everyone out there is are you being watched and if so by whom and if by whom why and if why what are you going to do about it And what do they do about it in Star Trek? I think the biggest thing that we find, especially when it comes to dealing with spies in our star society, there's a great deal of conflict, there's a great deal of consternation, and context sometimes is for kings. So ultimately, I think it's fascinating, and I hope we deal with more spies in the future. I hope we get to see more of that in the new Star Trek to come, because thankfully, ladies and gentlemen, I think we have a lot more Star Trek coming our way. And we are all better for it. It is my hope that the, with this multi-part ad, we have at least interested our listeners a little more in the world of spies. Being a spy is one of the hardest things in the world. Running an organization of spies just seems like it should be on the list of the toughest jobs in the world. And in a world where everything is so uncertain, there are these people out there in the shadows that that try to maintain some stability of world order that matches their definition of peace whether it's good for one person and bad for another in our three parts we have discussed a good spy in diana troy's face of the enemy a spy trying to make the world better in our second part with section 31 we have discussed we have discussed what i think is a necessary evil an organization that exists and does evil things but for what they believe is the greater good and turns out that in some situations that is the truth and then we have discussed the real world spy the spy that most closely resembles our world's character and we have broken down the character and try to deconstruct what it means to be a spy and what it means to be a human being what it means to be an individual caught in the crossfire between choosing his profession and his identity and trying to figure out what all of it means if there is anything that i hope we have accomplished apart from all the beautiful wonderful things that barry has just shared i hope we have interested you a little more in spies i hope we have taught you something about spies and i hope more than anything that you enjoy spies as much as we do or at least are now getting there and if you give us a shout and if you tell us how you felt about it and if it was something you liked we'll definitely try to do more of it in the future right bye 
That's right, Shashank. We do hope we hear from you. And of course, hearing from you is going to help us know that uh, we're not just screaming out into the internet abyss, but even if we are, we're enjoying ourselves. We are a political podcast, so if you've got some political thoughts, send it our way. We would hope, though, that it is in the spirit of loving Star Trek that we talk, and all sides of the spectrum are welcome as long as we keep it friendly and we keep a a prime directive of our own, which is infinite uh, diversity and infinite combinations. We can all talk with each other and meet on, on at least some of the same pages. This will about do it for our final thoughts. But hold on, there is more Polytrex to come. We are in discussions for our next episodes, but we have a pretty firm idea of where we're going. We have some exciting conversations with authors, and we have some interesting things that we are building in our warp code engines that we would we cannot wait to bring to your worlds. Suffice it to say, at this point, we would we are we are thinking about talking about some of the movies the classic original movies, some of the newer movies, taking themes from it and connecting them to the real world and causes that Barry and I are passionate about with animal cruelty and animal welfare and the way we treat beings that are lesser than us or are, are different from the way we are. We would, th- that Those are, I think, enough hints for you to stay excited about where we go in the future. But until then, live long and prosper. And onward to our star society. <laughs>